Hello and welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, ASRA Wrap. I'm your host today, Raj Gupta from Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And we have a fantastic topic and a wonderful group of people to talk to us today about uh, an important legislative uh, act that's come into Congress and come into the United States um, that will affect many of our practices as anesthesiologists and pain physicians. So we're going to be talking about that today. And before I do my introductions of all of our uh, guests, I do want to mention a couple of things about uh, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and some of the events and things coming up with Azure Pain Medicine in the near future. First off is I want to mention that on Saturday, October 1st, we are doing a webinar for environmental sustainability and your practice. This is sponsored by the Green Anesthesia Special Interest Group of Azure Pain Medicine. This does require registration. It is a uh, nearly full day seminar. It's got tremendous topics and speakers. I really am impressed with the program they've put together, but it does require registration. Um, so. I want you to go to this website. I'm going to put it up on the screen and you can go there and register for the meeting. Make sure you put it on your calendar. And I think it would be a fantastic thing to uh, participate in and, and listen to some of the things that we don't really think about, about how we can be environmentally conscious in our workspace in the operating room. Next, um, Azra's fall meeting is coming up very very soon so first off registration is open so if you want to come to that fall meeting in orlando florida definitely go to the website and register for the meeting but more urgently is the submission deadline for abstracts if you're interested in submitting case reports scientific material the deadline is august 23rd and the uh the website for submitting abstracts is open Here's the link to the uh, website, and there's a really interesting link on there. I don't know, most people probably miss it, but down in the corner, there's a link to learn how to build a better e-poster. I think all of us are kind of tired of looking at the same e-posters that we see all the time, and they're probably not formatted quite right for screens. So there's some new strategies to make your e-poster eye-catching and more appropriate for that size format. So. Check out the link. There's some YouTube videos and some information on how to make your your e-poster your e even more um, attention-grabbing than uh, just the content itself. So check out the link, submit your abstract, and uh, go follow the link to the uh, instructions about the e-posters. So those are the main announcements I wanted to make, and I will do introductions. So we have a full house. Let me see if we can see everybody. There we go. Even better. So... Um, Quick introductions for everybody here. So first off, I have Bob Jasek. Bob is our Azure Pain Medicine Regulatory Consultant. He's the Vice President for Coverage and Payment Policy with Heart Health Strategies. And prior to that, he served in a regulatory advocacy position at the American College of Surgeons and the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. He's also spent time in the hospital consulting world, worked at advisory board uh, advisory board company in DC and he's also worked in various positions in the federal government um, including the Department of Health and Human Services and the CDC Office of General Counsel. Um, he's He stems from my part of the world. I did my uh, residency at University of Michigan. He did his bachelor's degrees there and then I grew up in Atlanta and he did his law degree at Emory. So we've kind of intersected paths at different times in our lives but uh, first time meeting today. Welcome Bob. Thanks uh, for joining us and He's going to give us a lot of insight today. Thanks for having me. 
All right. Next, I've got Maggie Holtz. Maggie is um, so we have four rep- or three representatives of our Azra Pain Medicine Private Practice Special Interest Group. And what you're going to notice is is that um, this podcast I'm going to try to focus on highlighting the special interest groups and some of the work that they're doing in our monthly podcast. So we're hoping to have each month's podcast sponsored by one of the special interest groups. And the first ones uh, to help me out on this is the private practice special interest group. And Maggie's the chair of that group. Um, She's a board certified anesthesiologist who served as a assistant professor of anesthesia at Emory and then at Yale and now works in private practice for Georgia anesthesiologists. And she's a chief of regional and orthopedic anesthesia there and a medical director of the regional anesthesia at Wellstar Kennestone Regional Medical Center outside of Atlanta. Dr. Holtz speaks all over the country. Many of you have probably heard her speak. She speaks on opioid reduction and minimization strategies, enhanced recovery after surgery, and a ton of stuff about regional anesthesia. Um, And she's an excellent speaker. Maggie, welcome. Great to have you here. Thanks, Raj. Um, next up, we have Jenny Norenberg. Jenny is uh, the vice chair of the uh, private practice special interest group. She's also a board certified anesthesiologist who did her fellowship in regional anesthesia and periopter pain management at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, she completed residency at University of California, Davis, and now is a partner physician with the Southern California Permanente Medical Group in San Diego. Um, she focuses on perioperative pain protocols, uh, for a variety of different surgeries and provides resources and and teaching for patients, physicians on multimodal and regional anesthesia. She's also been speaking nationally on topics about regional anesthesia and enhanced recovery and uh, has taken on the role of enhanced, the leader of enhanced recovery after surgery at Kaiser San Diego, um, as well as California Society of Anesthesia Wellness Task Force Chair. So a lot of things in her bucket, a lot of things that she's busy doing. Jenny, great to have you here. Thanks, Raj. Glad to be here. And then uh, last but definitely not least, I've got Jerry Jones with us. Jerry is um, the CME liaison for the Private Practice Special Interest Group. He's a board-certified anesthesiologist in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, He's developed uh, or helped to assist in the implementation of numerous acute pain um, services across the country and served as the Division Chief of Regional Anesthesia and Acute Pain Medicine and has also served as acute pain service director at the Elvis Presley Memorial Trauma Center with uh, Regional One Health in Memphis. He's currently in private practice with East Memphis Anesthesia Services and is also an adjunct assistant professor at UTHSC. Uh, also, very avid speaker on regional anesthesia and acute pain medicine. Uh, I'm lucky to call these guys my friends, and uh, I just spit out a whole mouthful because their accomplishments are way too long, and so it takes a while to get through all of that stuff. But Um, After the introduction, I do want to introduce our topic. So our topic today um, has a fancy name uh, in legal circles, but we like to call it the No Surprises Act. So this was legislation that went into effect of January of this in January of this year. um, And it's focused on uh, balance billing and patient cost sharing and and is intended to help prevent um, patients from getting blindsided by bills because of in-network and out-of-network um, issues that they may not be aware of when they're having care. And so this is where I'm going to introduce Bob, because it, it is important to talk about this from the perspective of the patients, but for this audience, I want to talk a little bit from the perspective of the providers, and specifically how anesthesia and pain providers 
need to account for this No Surprises Act? Because honestly, most of us are probably pretty unaware of the implications. So, Bob, I'm going to hang it, hand it over to you for a little bit of introduction. Sure. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, just like you said, uh, the No Surprises Act uh, was passed into law. That uh, was at the end of um, 2020. So. Uh, a lot of this has been implemented over the course of the last year so that it would be ready to go on January 1st of 2022. Um, like you said, this was really directed at all the attention that, that uh, a lot of people have probably seen in the news about patients re receiving surprise bills. Um, I think that there's a you know bit of a PR misnomer that's in there. It's, you know, I, don't, I don't think it should be a surprise that providers are being paid for having delivered services. What's the surprise is that the plan's coverage and payment for it is not what patients expected. These are patients who are insured. Um, but well, we can use surprise bills for shorthand tonight because uh, we all know what that what we're talking about there. Um, so the um, the rules went into effect on January first, and you know I think that there's a couple of things that are important to to uh, lay out at the outset. The first one is that um, the law included really two sections. One is what we might call sort of surprise billing proper, right? This is the scenario where there are is there's an emergency, right? And you weren't able to check the network status of the physicians before you were taken to the emergency department. Or in the case of anesthesia, where you're providing anesthesia, let's say for surgery, maybe the patient checked the network status of their of their surgeon, um, but uh, weren't able to check for the you know the the anesthesiologist, the radiologist, um, and so uh, we end up in this in this situation, and the patient ends up sort of stuck in the middle. Um, so that's the one scenario. Um, and maybe we can start out talking about a lot of those. But there's a second bucket too. And the law regulations refer to it as protections for the uninsured. Um, and that's sort of a whole different animal because um, we're not talking about network status at that point, right? Because there is no plan. Um, but in the spirit of avoiding surprises, the act also includes requirements to provide patients with good faith estimates in advance uh, of receiving scheduled services. Uh, and so that's going to become important too, depending on um, your practice and and the care that you're delivering. Uh, so we sort of want to think of those as two different things, but they're both happening at the same time. So it's important to pay attention to both. But on the um, on the surprise billing proper um, side of things, when I th I think one of the most uh, important aspects to to understand is that it is truly uh, steeped in facility based care. So in order for the patient protections to apply, uh, whether it's an emergency or whether it is uh, an out-of-network service from, uh, I'm sorry, a, a non-emergency service by an out-of-network provider, <clears throat> in either scenario, there has to be a facility involved. So even for those out of those non-emergency out-of-network providers, um, the law says that it's got to be a facility-based service, so that means in a hospital. Um, that can mean a hospital outpatient department, uh, an, an ambulatory surgery center, but this isn't for office-based services. Um, that part, there, there is a facility component. And if you think about it, right, the policy behind this was, how do we provide protections to patients, <clears throat> but in scenarios where we should have a reasonable expectation that the provider's in network, or that the patient shouldn't have you know, been able to do homework about network status. So on the emergency side, right, it's easy for our, 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 all of us, I think, to wrap our heads around that, um, that 
but you, you just don't have time to look up the network status of your hospital or your provider. On the non-emergency side, um, the limitation here uh, is that it's gotta be facility-based care. That facility has to be in network, but the provider is out of network, right? So the patient did their due diligence, found out that the hospital or the ASC was in network and then happened to encounter a non, a, a non, an out of network provider along the way, then the act would come in and, and, and provide the protection. If it's non-emergency care and there's no in-network facility either, the protections wouldn't apply. Um, so sort of figuring out the scenarios, I think that, and there's lots of variations to it, is really important and key to be, um, uh, to, to have a good understanding of, to figure out when these things kick in. And we can talk about what that means um, as we go through the discussion. The, the one other thing that I would add, and then I'll, I'll stop talking where we can dig in a little bit more on whatever would be the most helpful, is that there are some obligations that are on the providers even before you get to the out-of-network billing scenario. So if you are a provider, <clears throat> whoever delivers services in a facility setting, there are new disclosure requirements for patients. So providers and facilities need to be telling these patients that they have these protections. <clears throat> and those disclosures really manifest in three different ways. One is that if you have a, uh, a, a practice website, you have to put those patient disclosures on your website. Um, and again, uh, that's just if you ever are delivering services inside the facility because the patients who then you know, look you up uh, need to know that if they were to encounter one of these scenarios that they would have protections available to them. The second one is uh, if you have an office uh, that you need to post these publicly in uh, uh, in your office, uh, sort of where you know maybe the patients would pay their bills or where you would schedule appointments. Um, that disclosure needs to be there. Now, <clears throat> if you uh, work with a hospital, you can separately sign an agreement with the hospital to take care of that public posting, but that needs to be in writing. So you still have to take an affirmative step either way. Um, and then lastly, there is an actual. Uh, patient disclosure that needs to be provided. Um, <clears throat> and it's a, a one-page document. Um, there's a, a version that the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services released uh, so that you know what it should look like. Um, and that basically needs to be provided to the patient, even if you're a network, right, so that they know along the course of their treatment uh, or the services that they provide that if they encounter an out-of-network provider, that they would have these protections. That's another requirement that you can put into a written agreement for the hospital to take care of for you um, or the ASC. Uh, but uh, uh, it would need, it, it, uh, you either need to be doing it on your own or that agreement needs to be in writing. And it would need to be in writing with each facility that you practice at if there are multiple facilities. And the last thing I'll throw in um, is that a lot of this will vary by state. The law refers to states wherever states have already spoken to this. Um, so we can talk a little bit more about what that means if it's helpful, but just know that if you have a state that, that already has addressed out-of-network billing or balance billing, and that's on the books, that to the extent that law applies, it would take precedence over uh, the No Surprises Act. Um, if it doesn't, then the No Surprises Act comes in and fills in the gap. 
And for those states that don't speak to this at all, uh, then the, the federal law and regulation would govern all of these scenarios. So let me start with a question for Maggie. Um, I, I want to kind of carve out, because we, we were talking a little bit before that uh, most of us haven't really seen this coming into effect in our practices, mainly because we don't have out-of-network providers in our practices uh, specifically. So Ma- Maggie, um, let's let's explain how... Um, or how your understanding is, is if everybody's in network, this doesn't apply, right? I mean, is that what you're seeing uh, or what you're hearing from your groups? Yeah, certainly. I I think I work for a large private practice that we contract with a very large healthcare system. And so when I went to my billing office and asked them, what changes have you seen since the institution of the No Surprises Act? And they said, not really anything. Um, They said, we are in network with most of the major payers um, if it's an emergency, certainly uh, we provide a good faith estimate. The only thing that, um, and that typically allows us to bill sort of more along the lines of an in-network reimbursement. Um, we would never charge the patient for an out-of-network um, chart in, in that circumstance. The only thing that that's changed um, with this institution of this act is the disclosure statement. Um, but that is provided, like you said, by our hospital. So it's not been something that we've even been involved with. Um, So our billing office kind of says, we don't really see any changes. I think my question for you, Bob, is are we being naive? Do you foresee there being more changes down the road? Are we just sort of at the tip of the iceberg here and we're going to be seeing um, things that are changing for providers, especially in anesthesiology? Yeah, um, that's uh, that's really helpful. Um, I think one of the things is that we we probably will be seeing things. So, for instance, you know, I don't know if your up if your website was updated um, to include the disclosures, but I think that that's a, a that, that's a good scenario to for everyone to understand that even if you're in network for everyone that you've seen so far, that there are still going to be affirmative things that you have to do, like get the get the agreement with the hospital that they're going to take over you know, the, the physical location disclosure and the one pager. Um, so I think that, that, that that's one piece of it. So if you, if you haven't taken those steps yet, it, you know, now's a good time to, 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 to take those affirmative steps. I think on the, um, the other piece that could continue to change is that, uh, um, you know, the, the plans have certain requirements on them on what they're supposed to share with you uh, if they are billed for a patient um, for whom you are not in their network. And the uptake on that has been a little bit slow uh, from what we understand and what we've seen. Um, uh, there are requirements on the plans here too on what they need to do affirmatively and they're not always doing it yet. Once they do, uh, I think that some of the the temperature might rise on this as well. Um, and the other thing that you might see changing, and I think that this is a good lesson for everybody who's in network is um, uh, uh, what the plans are going to pay you for out-of-network care. So even though um, you you know didn't need to balance bill patients in the past, um, you might have been receiving what you you perceived to be a reasonable payment from the plan, and so you were okay with that. If that changes, um, <clears throat> then uh, this whole issue could probably you know put you in a different situation. And uh, and so the one of the other um, concepts that I want uh, everybody to be familiar with is what the law introduced. It's called the qualifying payment amount. It's called the QPA. Um, and the, there's really only two um, pieces of significance for that in the law. 
One is that it's the anchor for patient cost sharing. So the qualifying payment amount is a new number that the plan generates that's supposed to be the median contracted rates that they have on the books for that item or service. And the law says that if the patient is out of network, the patient doesn't have to pay more for that service than they would have had to if they were in network. Well, if there's no contract, how do you do 20% coinsurance? You don't know 20% of what, right? So now in this new design, it would be 20% of that median contracted rate for that payer. Um, so that's that's one piece of information. And then two, if you're in, uh, living under the federal rules, there's a dispute resolution mechanism for payment disputes between the, patient, the, pr the provider and the plan. And the arbiter there is supposed to look at that number, the QPA, and, and take it into consideration when they're trying to figure out how to make a payment determination. But what we're seeing is that plans are using it to do something else. They're using that as your payment benchmark. And that number is turning out to be really, really low. Uh, and one of the reasons that, that we can guess that that's the case is that the rules for, for setting that number um, treat each contract the same, <clears throat> regardless of how many claims were paid on it or regardless of how many providers were under it. So if you have you know, a contract with three physicians on it, nobody was actually ever billing under that. And then you have another one with 100 physicians both of those count the same in terms of selecting the median. Um, and so you're ending up with these really bizarre numbers for that QPA amount. So now if plans start paying that really low number, you might also end up in a different situation. And I think it's important to know that that could be coming, that we're seeing plans doing it. But it's also important to know so that you're armed with that information because the plans have been saying the law requires them to do that. And that's not true. That number is only uh, uh, required by law for two things the patient cost sharing component and for the as a, as a reference point for the arbiter if it goes to dispute resolution. Jerry, um, you, you work at a, oh, sorry, go ahead, Maggie. Go ahead and follow up. I just have a follow-up question. Would that have any influence on the good faith estimate that we have to provide the patient then? Um, would we sort of be disincentivized from sort of highballing it because we don't want to be so far away from that QPA? Or does that have no bearing on the good faith estimate? I would say that it, it, it should um, generally have no bearing on it, that you should be able to have that good faith estimate reflect your charges when you're either required to um, uh, or when you, you might just do it on your own anyway. Um, and the reason that I say that is that if that um, uh, 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 dispute or that claim was to proceed to dispute resolution, you will have an opportunity to submit a different offer um, as part of that. It does not need to be um, what your charges were um, to the plan. Um, and in fact, uh, the arbiter is prohibited and you are prohibited from talking about what your actual charges are in dispute resolution. Um, and so uh, I, I think that you should feel free to you know, continue to do that because if you do go to dispute resolution, you can, you can submit a lower offer if you think that those are gonna look too inflated relative to the QPA. Thank you. So so Jerry, you, you said you work at multiple different institutions and bounce around a little bit, but I think we said on email that you're still not dealing with an out-of-network situation. But I don't know how much you deal with the contracts or negotiation with the, the insurance plans. One thing that keeps striking me, and I'm curious to know your thought, is I, except for the rare exception where a surgeon is going to um, give a good-faith estimate for an out-of-network anesthesiologist on the behalf of the anesthesia team, 
I don't see a difference between in-network and out-of-network anesthesia anymore. And I worry about what leverage that gives the plans to negotiate down prices for anesthesia because there's really no negotiation anymore. They know that it defaults to the in-network price regardless of, because anesthesia is not an emergency situation. It's an always situation based on this act. I already had that sort of idea. And then again, just listening to the conversation they just had about who gets to establish what the reasonable, you know, this median rate is. And as I first thought through, oh, well, what are our contracts? Uh, and I'm going to tell you the median of our, you know, of ours. That's how we're going to come up with this. But it does sound like if there is a possibility for this to get out of hand and sort of get pulled the downstream. And, and the, the comment that Maggie made about, you know, we're just going to give you a good faith estimate. This, here's ballpark what it ought to be. I had that same idea. Well, if anything, you should probably push it up a little bit because worst case, if it, if you're what, $400 difference or more, then you could get into a, a dispute. It sounds like, uh, yeah, you do need, we do need to have some savvy people in a, in our group to, uh, starting to, you know, looking at these contracts and, and things. Yeah, I, you know, I think there's a, a couple different directions we could go here, but the first one that I want to start with is is really this topic of, <clears throat> even though this was meant to address out-of-network care, what is this going to do to our in-network contracts, right? And I think you're exactly right, that, <clears throat> um, that if this is implemented in a way that, uh, generates a low median contracted rate <clears throat> and the policies are set up so that your actual payment gravitate, gravitates toward, toward that rate, right? There's no incentive for the plan to keep you in network, right? Why would they do that? And we have hard evidence that this is happening. Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina sent out letters to in-network physicians telling them that the QPA was to be used for payment purposes, which is first off, not true. Um, remember, it's just for patient cost sharing and for the arbiter to consider. Um, uh, and uh, and then two, basically said, we're gonna drop your rates, take it or leave it. Um, and so, you know, this bill that was supposed to protect patients from out of network uh, billing scenarios could be pushed into those scenarios more often if this is done incorrectly or the plans behave poorly because they'll run into more out-of-network providers if the plans don't keep them in. Um, so I think that that is a, is a big concern and something we have to watch. If any of you have seen the news related to the lawsuit, the lawsuit has really focused on, uh, and the Texas Medical Association launched the first one, but there's several other ones, uh, including ASA, uh, the emergency physicians. Um, but basically when these rules first came out, they told the arbiter, just pick the offer that's closest to that median contracted rate, right? And that's what started this problem we're talking about because then uh, the plans know, I'll just, I'll just go to dispute resolution, right? And I'm gonna win. And that's gonna be the lowest number. And now I don't even need in-network doctors, right? <clears throat> so that uh, a federal court overturned the implementation of that because that is not what the law says at all. So as long as they stay the course, that might've removed part of that in incentive um, but it is still something that I think we need to watch out for. Um, I also want to make sure that we spend a few minutes talking about the good faith estimate piece of this, but 
Um, uh, maybe I'll just sort of flag it there as a cue for us to come back to later and we'll di dive into that in a little bit more detail. Bob, can I ask a question? So when you talk about all this and, and there seems to be sort of different stories, if you're listening to the pair versus um, you know, somebody else, are there certain resources that you would recommend for our providers, our groups, our billing offices to go to and get sort of the truth and to stay legal, not only in the disclosure statements, but also um, sort of all of these little um, idiosyncrasies of the law? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is that, you know, I'm, I'm here in the capacity as a consultant to ASRA. And so, you know, we work closely with you and, and we're developing resources to help um, guide people through this. So the first thing I would do is go to the ASRA website um, and we'll try to, you know, make things, you know, as clear as possible. And, you know, to the extent that, you know, there aren't already answers to questions there. Those are things that we're going to keep working on as this all rolls out. Um, the second thing that I would say is that is that um, you know the agencies that are implementing this uh, really uh, uh, really know that there's a lot of questions about this. So I think that the you know the the primary you know right from the horse's mouth uh, uh, a website to go to is cms.gov forward slash no surprises. That's where um, the agency is posting frequently asked questions. Um, kind of divides this up into the sections of sort of are, are you coming at this from the viewpoint of a patient or a provider or a plan uh, to, to, to put it into that context. So I think that those are probably the best places to start. And when you dig in there too, you'll see those FAQs, which I think uh, will also shed some light on all these issues we're talking about. Thank you. I just put that link uh, for cms.gov, no surprises, into the comment field if anybody wants to look at that. And then there's also, I think uh, you had shared with us the American Medical Association Toolkit for Physicians. I'll put the link for that as well. Uh, I found that to be very useful. Jenny, I'm going to pass it over to you real quick. Sounds good. So, um, Bob, I work for Kaiser Permanente. So we have kind of a different setup than um, a lot of other private practice physicians. Um, and you know, when I asked around um, to the various uh, different um, specialties of people that I know, I was like, have you ever even heard of this No Surprises Act? Um, and they're like, oh, what? Um, and it was just a, a really interesting representation of how um, sheltered we are because um, our administration does um, the vast amount of work um, to to shelter the physicians and negotiate um, all of the prices and um, control our supply chain, our facilities um, as much as possible, except for an emergency care when we can't always control where our patients are brought. Um, but it's a, it's a really interesting um, scenario in which I'd love to um, just offer some representation and, and any um, tips and tricks of things that we might see in something like an HMO where we are really um, sheltered from everything else. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I think that one, um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is what we already discussed, which is things like the disclosure requirements, right? So even if you're in a scenario where you're perhaps not encountering uh, out-of-network patients as often as others might be, that there are kind of those affirmative before we even get into an out-of-network scenario obligations that are that are on providers now. So I think that's key. I think the other piece is what we discussed, right, which is watching um, uh, 
just just keeping an eye and I know that your you know administration will take care of a lot of this um, but just sort of what is it doing to contracted care and is that gonna is that gonna sort of trickle down to the providers if there's downward pressure on on your your contracted rates uh, so I think that that's that's a piece of it too um, the last thing that I you know what might add uh, is that you know and again we'll, we'll we'll talk more about the good faith estimate piece of this but whether there aren't going to be scenarios where there ends up being more sort of administrative burden placed on you as a provider, um, there are uh, provisions that are not in, in effect yet because the agencies haven't uh, promulgated the, rela- the, the regulations yet. Um, but uh, basically, uh, good faith estimates that are also going to be required for scheduled care. <clears throat> uh, and part of it is to create sort of a... Um, uh, the policy really there is to start to create sort of a marketplace for patients. So, so the thing is, right, is is if you give good faith estimates and when your bill charges are going to be, that doesn't really tell a patient, insured or uninsured, uh, or, or insured, what their um, what their out of pocket is actually going to be, right? Because you don't know what the what the plan is going to cover. So there are provisions that are going to require more scheduled care upfront, good faith estimate disclosures, so that plans can generate advanced EOBs. Um, and then the patient might be able to know, oh, hey, um, this is how much it's going to cost me out of po- uh, out of pocket. Knowing that, you know, I might make a different choice. Well, that's going to require a lot of input from you right at the outset as to what care you're going to deliver so that you can figure out what charges would get sent, you know, to the plan for this care that hasn't been delivered yet. Um, and so I think from a, you know, from a uh, just sort of administrative burden, there are things like this that might start to manifest as well, even for someone uh, like yourself that might not always, you know, encounter a lot of, uh, a lot of out-of-network patients relative to other anesthesiologists. Bob, I'm going to throw up a question that we got. Um, this is from JP Juanis. Uh, he says, does this mean that in-network negotiated time unit values um, time units value for each anesthesia group and insurers are now going to be public. Um, and then can I tie into that? Because, um, you know, one thing that's unique about anesthesiology is that um, we are a time-based specialty. And so I don't know how do you uh, square a good faith estimate that has to be within $400 uh, to avoid dispute um, when we don't control that time entirely, that's often based on the surgeon's pace uh, during surgery and other variables that we can't control. How do you do a good faith estimate for something that might take two hours or might take four hours? So two questions, one about the public uh, uh, nature of the negotiated time units, and then the second about how does time units uh, factor into good faith estimates? Those are great questions. So. As far as the question that you that you put up there, uh, the answer is no, but yes. Uh, no, <laughs> I'll put it no, back up there so people can read it. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is not going to going to make those those rates um, public. Um, so the No Surprises Act um, shouldn't be affecting that. However, uh, it's important to note that separate from this, there are other trains in motion about making information public. One of them um, are dis- are transparency requirements that are going to be placed on plans that are really going to that really came into effect at the beginning of this year and will really be in effect in earnest uh, on January first um, to disclose their negotiated rates um, and it's going to be by service and so if their payment rates are based on time 
they need to communicate those payment rates publicly. Um, so that is a, is a different vehicle. It's stemming from authority uh, given to the agency by the ACA. Um, so it is happening. That, that information might be out there, but it won't be because of the things that we're talking about today. Now, on your question about the, you know, the good faith estimate and, and how, do you, how do you get that estimate to be accurate, um, this is perfect um, to, to jump into this, the, the good faith estimate world. <clears throat> so uh, the first thing that um, I would like everybody to consider when they're talking about the good faith estimate is just that there are three different ones that have been introduced um, by this law. Um, so the first one um, is basically what I referred to it before, which is the good faith estimate that you're going to be required to provide for scheduled care so that the plan can generate the advanced DOB. That's not really often moving yet because the regulations haven't come out for that. Uh, the second one um, is for our surprise billing proper scenarios we were talking about. Um, one of the things that we haven't touched on yet is that the, the law basically for non-emergency situations allows patients to waive these rights. So if they say, uh, you've been my chronic pain doctor for, you know, you know five years, uh, you left, um, I want to pay out of pocket, um, I, 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 I'm willing to waive these rights and you can balance bill me, um, you can do that. Um, but in order to do that, there are a bunch of requirements you need to meet, one of which is that you need to provide a good faith estimate for that service that the patient is, is waiving their, their, their protections on. So that's the second one. Um, when you had mentioned the, four, uh, the $400 and the, what's reasonably expected, this is that other bucket um, that we talked about at the beginning about protections for uninsured patients. So now, Whenever you see an uninsured or a self-pay patient, this can include patients who are insured but just have no intention of submitting the claim to their, to their payer, you have to provide a good faith estimate um, for the charges for what you reasonably expect to occur at the time of scheduling. <clears throat> so to get back to your question, if you were uh, providing a good faith estimate under these under this section of the rules, you would be doing it in advance of delivering the services, and it would be for what you reasonably expect at the time of scheduling. Um, that you know, I, I don't know how much that you know varies. Uh, there are is enforcement discretion this year on a lot of this. So, um, what a, a lot of folks are talking about is providing a range. Um, the agency has said that they're not thrilled with that because uh, that's not specific enough for patients to really, if you're, if you're trying to make this shoppable um, uh, or, or for the patient to really know what they're on the hook for, if the range is too wide, um, then it's not going to really inform the, inform the patient. Um, but uh, that would be, um, you know, what's reasonably expected at the time of, of, of scheduling. And, and I'm sure you all have, uh, you know, a lot of thoughts on, on how doable that is. Um, what I would say is that, you'd, you know, you'd mentioned that $400 number. So what that's in reference to, um, just for, uh, for everyone else as well, is that uh, the law also creates a process. If you're seeing an uninsured patient, you deliver that good faith es estimate for scheduled care. If your actual bill is more than $400 than what that good faith estimate was, the patient can take you to a provider patient dispute resolution process. So this is a different dispute resolution process than with the plans. This is the uninsured patient. There is no plan and they can take you to the dispute resolution process. 
So that is triggered. Their right to do that is triggered if the actual bill is $400 more than what your good faith estimate was. Now, the, the, um, the rules are, are pretty clear um, that the patient can do that as long as that variation is $400. But when you get there, right, you would be able um, to demonstrate uh, why what you provided was reasonably expected at the time based on the information you had at the time of scheduling. Now, that's probably a little bit of cold comfort, right? You still have to go through this whole process and, and then it might be determined that you were right in your original estimate. Um, but uh, nonetheless, there, that, that's sort of the safety net to that. Um, you know, the other question is, you know, like Dr. Holtz, you were saying, you know, are you going to balance bill the patient for that difference? Um, you know, would you keep this dispute going with the patient? That'll inform whether you end up in that scenario. Um, but but the, the standard that they use is what is reasonably expected at the time of scheduling. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Maggie ask a question, but just as a, just a follow-up comment to that, um, you know, I, I, I take care of, I don't know how many thousands of patients a year, you know, and that's just me and not just my whole practice. You know, I'm, how many times do you multiply this negotiation arbitration process, the amount of administrative and uh, uh, additional work? Uh, basically, again, I think this is going to default to just ignoring that out-of-network cost because it's too much hassle to fight it in most situations, except for a few rare exceptions. I, I just think that that's going to be the, the and, and I think the insurers know that. Um, I bet yeah. they know that. Well, and in addition to that, there's a cost, right? And the loser at the negotiation pays the cost. Yeah, um, that's one, another disincentive there. Right. And that and those costs range from two hundred to six hundred dollars, right? So if your payment only sort of you know, it, your the payment your bill charges, let's say they were five hundred dollars and the plan pays you three hundred dollars, are you really gonna go and fight over that two hundred dollars? One thing that's important to this though, to keep in mind that is was intended to address your concern is that uh, there is a mechanism for dispute resolution. And this again is on the plan dispute side for batching claims. So if you see a problem with the same plan over and over and over and over for the same item or service, you can take a whole mass of them that were delivered within 30 days of each other um, and take them to dispute resolution together and pay one fee um, to have all of them resolved. So they would basically be the, the exact same item or service. It's, you know, you as the provider, and it, it can even just be your tax ID number, your whole group. Um, so delivered by anybody in your group and then the, the same plan and try and have those resolved together because of your concern. Um, even then, it still might be too big of a burden and suck up too many resources, but that was intended to sort of address the scenario that you were you were describing. Um, so there are some questions that sort of we as a group were discussing prior to this podcast. Um, and, and I think one question kind of led to another one. One we had was, is there anything specific to regional anesthesia? So we're all regionalists. We all do nerve blocks. Um, we're talking about certain caveats that you know may come into play. Raj mentioned the time factor, um, the presence or absence of doing a, a nerve block and having an acute pain service follow a patient. That's another one that often happens in emergency situations where there may not be that uh, in-network guarantee. Um, is there anything sort of spelled out or any sort of guidelines for that process? Should that be included in the good faith estimate? Um, from the start in case it does happen? Um, 
let I'll break that down a little bit. So the you know one uh, one piece of course is the you know are we talking about an insured or an uninsured patient? So the uninsured patient is going to uh, uh, require a good faith estimate if it's non-emergency, and then that is going to be a good faith estimate for everybody that's involved, right? Uh, the if there's a surgeon your services, the hospital services, that all has to be compiled into a, um, into a single good faith estimate. Uh, so that's, that's a big deal. And, and, and I think that it's something that you would, um, you know, you would, you would for sure want to consider. Um, and the, and, and one of the things there that we, we don't need to get into right now is the burden on who has to pull all of that together. Now for, um, you know, depending on the, your practice situation, somebody else might be taking care of it. It's all dependent on who schedules the care. Um, but for those of you, you know, that are separately scheduling services for patients, if you're treating chronic pain or whatever, whatever the scenario might be, and you're the scheduling provider, the burden of collecting all of this information is, is on you. Um, the, uh, but, but, but getting back to your, your specific question about regional anesthesia and how this might sort of land differently um, uh, for your practice. One thing that I think is, is important to mention um, for the insured patient, but we have out-of-network providers. Um, if you remember, I had mentioned that sort of notice and consent process for the patient to waive their protections. Um, if this is a scenario where you're providing regional anesthesia, but there's a, a, a surgeon that's providing a separate service, um, this is set up so that a essentially the surgeon uh, can uh, provide that notice and the patient can consent to waiving these protections um, for that service. Um, but uh, the other providers who are contributing to that care, which the law um, categorizes as ancillary providers, that notice and consent um, uh, uh, provision is not available to you. So you would still be prohibited from balance billing. Um, on the administrative burden front, what that means is in those notice and consent um, situations, you're not going to be asked for a good faith estimate because you can't balance bill the patient anyway. So the patient's cost sharing is limited to uh, uh, to their in-network rate. That's back to that QPA issue. But that's one thing that's different. So if you're providing anesthesia services that are you know adjunct to the you know to to a surgeon's, the surgeon can can ask the patient to waive those protections, but you can't uh, as an anesthesiologist. So it seems like, you know, with anesthesia, in a way, the way we bill or how we would come up with a, a GFE is hard and it's easy. Because I don't know which surgeon's going, uh, which scrub tech is doing something that slows it up and that changes our time. But, but at the same time, but actually, it's actually kind of easy. Here's our base units. Here's how much we charge per unit of time. If I need an arterial line, here's what it is. If I need a block, yes, no. I mean, we could provide on that. So it seems like there's a way, there, there's theoretically a way to make this. I can't tell you exactly what it's going to cost. It's going to cost this much per unit time. Mm -hmm. It seems like maybe we could do that. But, but let me ask you a real, a very practical part of this. One of the things I read in there is that um, you can't just say, um, uh, here's the good faith estimate for uh, East Memphis Anesthesia Services. You have to say on October the 3rd for Dr. Jones and nurse anesthetist Sally Smith. You can't, and it said you can't put East Memphis Anesthesia Services. So do I have to write 
every anesthesiologist and every nurse anesthetist on that and handed it and say, it'll be one of us? Yeah, so the um, the we're, we're living under the rules of the uninsured self-pay GFE right now in, in what you're speaking about. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly right. That uh, it has to name the actual provider. Um, if you're scheduling this a month out, um, I'm sure you know how difficult that could be. So there are really two ways that the regulations deal with that. One is, is that if the rates were to change based on that change provider, um, then it triggers a requirement to issue a new GFE. So you're able to issue a new one if that's going to change the rate. Um, the other option, I think, since, if, since it sounds like, you know, your rates are the same for all of the providers in that group, or at least in your example, um, there's sort of another backstop to uh, alleviating the administrative burden with, with, you know, constantly regenerating GFEs every time you put somebody else new in that, uh, on that schedule. And that basically is um, a, a part of the provision that says if um, the provider changes um, within a certain amount of time, very close in time to when the patient's going to receive that, the provider who steps, um, who, who steps into that role is basically um, uh, uh, bound to what that GFE said, right? So you wouldn't have to, so in that scenario, you could name someone and if that turns out to be someone else, as long as the rate's the same and your uh, and that new provider who actually delivers the service or furnishes the service is willing to live by what the the rate was provided in the GFE, then there would be no added step that you have to take. And and that's certainly the only the only time it would really make another difference would be um, that's a day that it turns out if an anesthesiologist is in the room doing it themselves, or uh, I'm medically directing that case. Oh, it turned out to be non medically direct. I mean. Those are the only times practically where the rate would change and that's, and the, but it's not pro provider dependent. So that's the only. Uh, Jerry, right. you need to put your name on every one of those ones and then they'll right. just, everybody just has to on. accept your rate <laughs> on every but time. Group dependent, right? And another thing that Raj, you had brought up was what happens when you have multiple anesthesia groups working within the same facility who may oh. have very different rates. And what happens when one group is on call on a specific day and another group is on call the next day, you don't have time to provide a good faith estimate. It's an emergency. You know, there's there's so many of those sort of uh, gray areas, I feel. I think that's exactly right. And and if, you know, if there are also folks that are listening that say, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, we really see enough uninsured or self-pay patients um, to, to, to have to worry about this a lot right now, just remember that there's that other section of regulation that's coming um, that basically is going to trigger the same sort of thing so that the plan can give the patient an advanced DOB. So you're going to end up having to deal with this, whether we're talking about insured or uninsured patients um, as we go as we go forward. The repercussions of that GFE being wrong might be different depending on whether the patient is insured or not, um, but it nonetheless will be something you have to grapple with. Well, I just wanted to, I, I'm, you know, as Maggie brought up, she, we're, we're all regional anesthesia and acute pain, but some of our listeners um, are certainly uh, chronic pain uh, practitioners who, um, in my observation, are far more complicated um, than we are, or we are generally hospital-based, um, even if there's two or three groups. Um, what kinds of 
resources and expectations for these non-emergent uh, procedure-based or visit-based office-based things can they expect? Um, you know, are they really going to have to use a lot of this, uh, you know, multiple disputes in one monthly visit kind of thing? Um, you know, and you know, how many of them are going to actually be uninsured, so on and so forth. There's a really a lot of nuance there for these chronic pain physicians. I'd love for you to comment on that. Yeah, um, that is is a great question. So <clears throat> the, the first thing is, uh, again, just a reminder that the, protect, the patient protections for the surprise billing proper scenarios must involve facility-based care for us to even start asking questions about whether any of this applies. So if that is truly an office-based visit, or you know, uh, it doesn't need to be an E&M, but a, but an office, you know, a service delivered in an office setting, those protections don't apply to the patient, um, <clears throat> and so uh, there's no uh, prohibition on balanced billing. Um, if you're out of network, none of that. I would also, you know, just just remind you that those patient disclosures, those sort of affirmative disclosures, that these protections may become available to you. Um, are, are required unless you never see patients in a facility. So for the, you, you know, for those of you that practice in chronic pain, if you are never in a facility setting, um, then you don't have to meet those patient disclosure requirements. Um, now, one um, little sort of footnote to this, though, is that uh, I don't know if any of you um, have practiced in provider-based departments right? It sort of looks like an office, but the hospital system bought up the practice. Um, I don't know how much we, we see that in the, in the chronic pain uh, area, but um, there was a trend a while in like oncology and cardiology where the hospital would buy the practice um, <clears throat> and um, the government sort of woke up, right? And said, oh, we have an issue here because that's really an office visit. But now all of a sudden we're paying the professional fee, but also there's a facility charge coming in. Um, and so if you are, you know, a, a chronic pain based um, management based practice um, and it otherwise looks like an office visit, but it's truly a provider based department, that provider based department is actually considered a facility. So find out if there's any facility charge going in, right? If it's viewed as a hospital outpatient department service, um, that would that would trigger these surprise billing proper requirements, but otherwise you're exactly right. The office-based practices uh, or, or services or, or interactions um, don't uh, it, are not what this these protections speak to. But on the good faith estimate stuff, the good faith estimate for the for the uh, for the uninsured and uh, self-pay patients, and eventually in the future for the advanced purposes of the advanced DOB, there's no facility restriction on those requirements. Uh, that's for any service. Um, that's for even non-covered services. Um, uh, if a patient, if you schedule something as a, as a healthcare provider um, or the patient asks for a good faith estimate, um, you have to provide it. Um, and so uh, even, uh, I think it's great that to, to, to have this discussion because I do think a lot of people here, you know, surprises act, surprise billing. Um, I don't practice at a facility this doesn't apply to me, um, those good faith estimate provisions would. So we are uh, coming on to an hour, uh, believe it or not. We already got to that. And for those of you guys who've watched all the way to this part of the podcast, uh, I'm very impressed with you because this stuff is really heady. Um, it's difficult to get our heads around all of this information. But um, 
I, I think my head is full of more questions than even answers at this point because I don't know, even in an academic practice, I have a feeling that this is a train coming our way. Um, there is, I put those links underneath. I think I encourage you to become informed, uh, read up about this, learn how it may interact with your practice, um, access people who know this policy. Uh, one of the reasons we have heart health helping Azure Pain Medicine is to give us guidance in areas that we don't understand. Um, the reason we have the private practice special interest group is to kind of be the liaison for some of this information and pass it on to our members. So if you're an Azure Pain Medicine uh, member or if you're not, you should become one. Join the private practice special interest group. These are your leaders right there in front of you and, and approach them and help them kind of figure out what information needs to be passed through to the community and we have people like Bob to help them kind of feed that information to you. Um, I do want to leave one comment aside is that um, as all of us talk about the challenges and tribulations and navigating of physicians and practices and facilities, um, we're also all patients. So um, there are a lot of good things from a patient's perspective in this, but I hope the people who are patients, again, every one of us who are listening to this, um, do remember that this creates added complexity, confusion, and uncertainty for a lot of the providers that they are trying to seek care from. Um, it doesn't mean that we're trying to milk everybody for the last penny. It's just that we don't understand what the implications for our practices will be, and we're trying to learn. So I, I really want to thank you, Bob. Um, it was incredibly enlightening. Like I said, honestly, I have more questions than answers at this point, but that's a start uh, of learning. Um, and it's you've been tremendously helpful in elucidating a lot of this complexity. Um, so thank you for that. And um, I want to thank Maggie, Jenny, Jerry. Um, you guys are always wonderful. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys in person soon at some point because that's always better than over this stuff. But in the meantime, it's great to talk to you like this as well. But thank you, everybody. Um, go follow those links. Go to azra.com and um, you know follow our newsletters and information that comes out. A lot of tr really, really good information comes out of our organization to help your practice. Um, thank you, everybody, and have a wonderful night.